coming from Genesis 8, 15 through 9, 15 in the NIV. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds and the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his son's wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the land came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and the clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hands. Everything that moves and lives will be, about for, will be food for you, just as I gave, gave you the green plants. I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made mankind. God has made mankind. Uh, for as for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with them, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was made with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals and all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant. I am making between me and you and every living creature with you a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Deb, so much. Jim Elliott was a student at Wheaton in the early 50s. And he heard some statistics that were astounding to him. These statistics was there was one Christian worker for every 50,000 people in foreign lands, while there was one Christian worker for every 500 people in the United States of America. So in 1952, after his graduation, Elliot sailed for Ecuador. The plan that he had was to locate an old oil field station that had been abandoned because it was too dangerous. It was too dangerous because it was close to the Alka tribe. 
And the Alka tribe was a murderous tribe that had not seen outside life at all. So in February of 53, he, uh, he arrived in Quito, Ecuador, where he met a young woman named Elizabeth. They were married in October. Now, the Alcas were violent and they were murderous, never any contact with the outside world. But Jim, along with his wife, wanted to bring the gospel to them, so he developed a plan called Operation Alca. The plan was to, with his wife and five other missionary couples, reach this tribe. The men discovered the first huts of the Alcas by flying over them with a a, a jungle missionary pilot named Nate Saint. Saint. Their first contact with, with this tribe was by airplane. And what they did is they would fly over the tribe in a circle and they would yell down greeting words in Alka. They would also hang a basket down that had gifts and the Alkas would come to this basket and they would get it. They were really encouraged by the progress and so after about three months they decided to go to the river right by the Alka tribe. And the river was called the Curé River, and their beachhead was called Palm Beach. They set up a shelter, and they eventually made contact with the Alkas. After a little persuasion, they convinced some of the Alkas to come into their camp, and encouraged by that, they decided to visit the Alkas in their tribal area. One morning after they had sung praise songs and had prayed fervently, they radioed to their wives that they were going back to the village and uh, Operation Alka was underway as they really wanted to begin a ministry to them. The next day, 30 Alka Indians came to Palm Beach. One of the missionaries saw them and said, Guys, the Alkas are coming. And like any hospitable person, they began to straighten up their camp. What they didn't know is that they would all be dead in a few hours. The last radio contact they had was Jim Elliott radioing his wife, Elizabeth, we'll call you back in about three hours. Later, when they went to the camp, they found Elliott's body uh, downstream, along with three other uh, bodies there. Their bodies had been brutally stabbed with spears and hacked apart by machetes. After Jim's death, Elizabeth and their daughter and another of the missionary's sister named Rachel moved near the Alka tribe to minister to them. They showed the love of Jesus to this tribe by forgiving them. And something amazing happened. Many of the Alkas became Christians. So I want to ask you a question this morning. As you think about that, was Jim Elliott's life a waste He asked himself this question, or he said he actually said this, and I want to put it in the form of a question. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot get keep to gain what he cannot lose. And the question I want to put to you this morning, and I want you to think about it. Are you wasting your life? Now, I don't pretend to know the answer to that question for anybody in this room. I have to think about it in my own life. But I think it's a worthwhile question. And you know, as I get older, it's a question I want to ask more directly and more honestly. Am I, am I wasting my life? And when you think about Jim Elliott, was it worth it? And when you think about 
what you spend your time doing, is it worth it? Now, I think this passage has a lot to say about that. Because what is happening here is God has saved Noah after a 150-day flood. And he calls Noah out into something larger. And he calls Noah out into this larger story for Noah to play a particular part. But it's all contingent on Noah trusting God. Is God faithful? Can you really trust him with your life? And to do in and through your life things that you couldn't possibly do on your own. Can you trust God enough? And this is a question I want to put to all of you, wherever you are. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I want to say this to you. My motive or my, my purpose for you is this. I want to ask you to consider setting down the pen that you're using to write your, the story of your life. Setting that pen down. And letting God pick it up. That's what I want to ask you to do. Those of you who are Christians, if you've subtly, t- subtly taken that pen from God and now you are back to writing your own story, I want to ask you to give it back. Because what you will see here is a man God used to do far beyond what this man could do on his own. Let's see how it unfolds. Look at verses Chapter 8, verses 15 through 22 first. Notice that God calls Noah out of the ark. Now, Noah doesn't just step out of the ark. God opens the door and actually calls him out of the ark. And that's a metaphor, men and women, of God. When you come into a relationship with a living God, he calls you into a a larger story. And he calls you into a larger story and then gives you a vital part to play. Can you imagine Noah stepping out of the ark after 150 days of flood water on the earth. Those of you who were in town in 2010 when Nashville was flooded, do you remember when you could first start driving around a little bit? Do you remember what it looked like? Did, were you in some of the areas that were severely flooded? It was absolutely amazing. Imagine after 150 days what Noah stepped out to. Well, let me tell you, it was a huge step of faith for Noah. But do you know why he was willing to make it? Because we have chapter 6, verse 9. Noah walked with God. In other words, Noah had an intimate relationship with the living God. He found he could really trust God. And so he stepped across a threshold not knowing what was before him. And men and women, I want to say this to you. I don't care whether you're a Christian or not. If you think you're in control of your life, you are in for the surprise of your life. I can tell you that. You really are. And that surprise may come in a, in a medical office when you hear something you don't want to hear or a telephone call you don't want to get. And in my line of work, I work with people like that all the time, that they, we feel like we're in control, and suddenly we find out we're not. Do you know what Noah learned through 150 days of sitting in that ark with stinky, stinky animals? Do you know what he learned? He, wanted to, he learned he wanted to get out of that ark. You know what else he learned? He knew he had to trust God to step across the threshold. I want to ask you to, with me, step across the threshold today. I don't know what your threshold is. I don't know what you need to step into or what you need to leave behind or let go. 
But every one of us has a threshold that we step across because we can trust the living God. And Noah walked with God. He learned to hear God's voice. So many of us, and I want to say this to those of you who are followers of Jesus this morning, and I say it to myself. Men and women, if you've been following Jesus a long time, you know what can subtly happen is we begin to veer off the road of faith and we move towards the road of safety and personal comfort. It is, it's the subtle seduction of prosperity. There's nothing inherently wrong with prosperity. But the only way prosperity will not kill you is if it ends up in generosity. If it, if it doesn't end up in generosity, prosperity will strangle you with the idol of comfort and rob you of a life of faith. And that's what we learn from Noah here. He was called by God into something he couldn't possibly do on his own. And I want to say to you, if you want to waste your life, do what you can do. If you don't want to waste your life, give your life to Jesus and watch what he can do. Os Guinness said this in his great book, The Call. Calling is the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are, everything that we do, and everything we have is invested with a special devotion and dynamism lived out as a response to his summons and his service. Verses 15 through 19, there's a verb there, a Hebrew verb. It's used four times. And it means called out or come out. This ark has been Noah and his family's salvation. But now Noah is called out of the safety of the ark into a wild world that's just been flooded. And what God is doing is calling Noah out into something that Noah cannot do on his own. That's a description of the Christian life. I want to stop a moment. And I want to speak to anybody in the room that if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've not been saved, if you've not been born again, however I need to say it, okay? Let me tell you what the Christian life is. Like Noah, he had to step across a threshold. The Christian life is realizing, or it, to enter the Christian life, you must realize that Jesus is life, that he was raised again from the dead, and he offers you a life that you cannot find on your own. It's called eternal life. You can't earn it. You can't lay hold of it. It's a free gift to you that cost him everything. It's put like this in the scripture. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. When you come to faith in Christ, you trust him for who he is and what he's done. You invite him into your life, and you say with this man, Christ lives in me. Now, here's what happens. You're made new. God gives you a new heart. Now, that heart is the seed of a transformation that will take a lifetime, but it is a transformation that will occur and be brought to perfection at the end. Let me tell you something. When Jesus starts a work of grace in you, he will not leave it unfinished. He won't. He will make... You think you're ugly? He'll make you beautiful. You don't like what you see in the mirror? Look into the face of Jesus. 
when you look into the face of Jesus, you'll not see yourself, but you'll see one who loves you and gave himself for you and will change you. And that's stepping across the threshold. It's leaving your old life behind and trusting him with new life. Noah had to do that in so many ways. He found the ark safety. And now he steps into this threshold, this larger life. Notice here, Noah hasn't uttered a word. And if you've been with me through this whole series, Noah hasn't spoken once. God's done all the talking. And do you know why Noah hasn't spoken? Because Noah is a doer. He's not a talker. Think of it like this. Talk is cheap. And men and women, those of you who are Christians in the room, what this culture needs is for people who call themselves Christians to act like it. That doesn't mean we're called to perfection. We're called to honesty. We're called to repentance. We're called to generosity. We're called to confess our sins and to take responsibility for what we've done wrong and ask God to change us. True Christianity leads to utter humility, not arrogance and denial. True faith in Christ will never, never lead you to take power over another person to take advantage of him and her or her, but only give you the strength to kneel back down before them to wash their feet. We won't do it perfectly, but one of the greatest gifts Jesus has given us is the gift of repentance. That's why we practice confession of sin. Men and women, the world needs the Christian to confess their sins and to go first doing it. Noah is a doer. He's a man who chooses to follow God, to do what God says, to sacrificially love. And I want to tell you this. If you decide to give your life to Christ, those of you in the room who haven't, let me tell you this. Is it easy or is it hard? Well, let me say this. It, yes. It's easy in the sense that to give your life to Christ is to give your life to one who's done it all for you and will give you all things. But let me tell you what he gives you the strength to do. He gives you the strength to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow him. That's what he gives you the strength to do. He doesn't give you the strength to go on vacation. He gives you the strength to step into battle. That's what he does. What are you fighting for? You're fighting for things that are worthwhile. Like the lives of other people. That's what you're fighting for. There are two things in life, a friend of mine said. Relationships and junk. Jesus is all about relationship. Sacrificial love in relationship. For Noah, talk was cheap. Action was everything. John Piper, don't waste your life. But whatever you do, find the God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated passion of your life and find your way to say it and live for it and die for it. And you will make a difference that lasts. You will not waste your life. He, who is, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
And notice Noah's response to this gracious God. Look at verse 20. Noah worships in response to the living God. The key to a radical life change for all of us is an encounter with a love that you've never, ever known before. God's love is so radical because it's so life-changing and so powerful, and it's the starting point of our love for God. What Noah does in worship is to respond to the love of God who's just saved him. Notice what he does in verse 20. He offers burnt offerings. That literally means whole burnt offerings. What is he saying? He's offering his entire life in joy and thanksgiving to the living God. This points to Romans 12.1. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, here's the worship that the Lord Jesus calls you into. Oscar, will you throw it up there, please? Romans 12.1. You got it? Good. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Men and women, worshiping God is not one hour a week on Sunday morning. Worshiping God is the surrender of your life and everything that you are, everything that you have, everything that you do for the glory of God. Now, why would you want to do that? Because, men and women, you were made for it. You were designed for the Creator God to worship Him. And that's where you're going to find your greatest joy because at the very heart of who you are. You were made for God and God alone. And if you set up anything else in your heart as God, it will fail you and ultimately destroy you. Money is not going to save you. You can't make enough of it. Beauty is not going to give you what you want, whether it's your own or somebody you look at. You know why? We lose it. I went to the eye doctor Friday, and I'm going to get new glasses. And I said to my eye doctor, I want to look intelligent and rich. <laughs> is that okay? Let me know next Sunday. Do I look smarter and do I look like I can retire? <laughs> you know, don't we put our hope in physical beauty? But what the Lord said is your heart is made for him. And that's why we offer our bodies as living sacrifices because that's where our greatest joy is. Look at verses 21 and 22. This is wonderful. God is satisfied. It's a pleasing aroma. See that? With Noah's offering. And what does God respond? How does God respond? He responds by offering a promise to Noah. And then that promise is not to flood the earth ever again. And to bless nature with a regularity and a predictability so that humanity can thrive. And do you know what we learn here? When you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he blesses you. And the way he blesses you is the fullness of his spirit so that you can thrive and flourish. He doesn't keep you from suffering, but he goes through suffering with you and will not waste it. That's what he does. And so as we worship, God responds. He's a God of promise. And he makes a promise to Noah here to not flood the earth ever again. And just as God here gives life to Noah, now God calls Noah to be life-giving. Just as God has blessed Noah, now God calls Noah to bless people. Look at verses 1 through 8 of chapter 9. Look at how it works. Look at verse 1. God commands Noah 
to be fruitful and, and increase, just like he did Adam. Look at verses 2 and 3. The animals here will be caused to fear humanity, and now some of them will become food for humanity. Now, I'm not going to go down the, should we be a vegetarian or not, okay? I'm really not. I went to Carabas last night, having studied this this week, so I love chicken with goat cheese on it. I do. Um, but, you know, people swear that, see, you know, eating meat is, is post-flood, pre-flood. They were just eating fruits and nuts and vegetables. You know what? I can go either way. I would say more power to you, whatever you decide. Don't build a huge theology on it. But do know this, that God is providing. That's important to know, that our God provides. Look at verses 4 through 6. And here's what's really important to know. He says, don't eat meat with lifeblood in it, and don't take innocent life. And here he institutes capital punishment. And so what you see is the summary of these verses in verse 7 where he tells his son uh, Noah and his sons, again, to be life givers, to be fruitful and multiply. And so why is that? Because men and women, the Christian life is about receiving life from God and then giving that life away. It's not about hoarding it. That's why Jesus said to this man who was wealthy, he said, man, if you are blessed with prosperity, if all you do is build bigger barns to store that prosperity, you know what? You've wasted your life. Men and women, don't waste your life. Please don't waste your life building bigger barns. Please don't waste your life accumulating more where you spend most of your time in maintenance of stuff you never use. Please don't do that. Please don't. Own what you use. And what you own, share like crazy. And if you own something you're not willing to share, don't own it. It will kill you. It will. Noah and his sons are called to be life givers. And so, and I was, Nancy, I think Allison was in a second, first service. And Nancy works with the people who work at McKissick. McKissick is an at-risk school, middle school close by here. Men and women, that's how to be life-giving. I think y'all went over last week to celebrate. Did they win the city championship? They won, McKissick won the city championship undefeated. Did they all get college scholarships? Really, to Alabama, I trust. <laughs> See, we've been given life, and so we need to step into places that need life. And that's what the church is to be about. Because when God gives life, he gives more than enough, and he always gives more than enough to share. Now, if we're going to live that kind of life, it starts with a vibrant, vibrant relationship with the living God. Look with me at verses 8 through 15. This is really powerful. First, verses 8 through 11, God makes a covenant with Noah and his descendants and really with all the living creatures so he makes a promise. And you know why? Because God loves humanity, but God also loves the animals. You guys, think of a golden retriever with me. Do any of you own a golden retriever? 
Do you all, do you all have one, Leslie? Is he a he or she? He is he a gorgeous creature? He's gorgeous, isn't he? Only God could do that. Now I had what I call a midnight passion, otherwise known as a mud, and um, his name was uh, was uh, uh, Pete the Wonder Dog. Pete the Wonder Dog. Pete was not beautiful. Pete needed medication. He had the personality of a human being. And God blessed me with that dog like he's blessed you with your dog. Cats, I'm not so sure. But dogs, (laughs) I'm just kidding. You please, if you're a cat lover, I repent. I repent. I repent. (laughs) But God's blessing the animals too because he loves the animals. And animals will be in the new heavens and the new earth. He loves humanity. And so what does he do? He says, I'm never going to flood the earth again. And to seal his promise, he gives us the rainbow to say, I'm not going to flood the earth again. Now, don't be confused. When he says he's not going to flood the earth again, what that means is he's never going to judge like that again, though there will be a judgment day. He'll not be a flood. It'll be a day where Jesus returns and all of us will stand before God's throne in judgment, all of us. So there is that judgment day. But until that day, we have a time of mercy and grace. And here's what I mean. He gave us the rainbow as a sign to say, I'll never flood the earth again. And the rainbow was a sign of God's mercy. And it's from horizon to horizon, the rainbow. My wife was in Bellevue a few, three or four or five weeks ago, and she took a picture of a rainbow that went from horizon to horizon. I'd never seen one before. It was really, really cool. Do you know why rainbows go from horizon to horizon? Right, because God's mercy is universal. It's a universal offer. In other words... None of you in this room is too far away to receive God's mercy. And really, none of us in the room need any less of God's mercy than anybody else. We all need God's mercy. And if you don't think you need God's mercy, you need it more than you realize. We all need it. And that's why the rainbow is from east to west. Because God's mercy is so universal as his love is universal. Now, there are many opinions on the significance of the rainbow. I'm going to give you my take on it, but but I've heard a lot of different takes on it. I'm just going to give you mine because I think it's the most universal. Personally, I like this explanation best, and that is this. For those of you who are theological in the room, if I commit a heresy, come to me and we will expunge the tape. This is not heresy. So the rainbow is beautiful in its color. And so it really represents the glory of God. But it's set against the backdrop of stormy clouds, of clouds of darkness, which represents the darkness, the judgment of God. You'll see what I mean in just a minute. So what you have is the mercy of God, the rainbow, in front of the dark clouds that brought the flood. The rainbow's indicating that the flood is subsiding. The mercy of God is stopping the flood. Do you see how that works? The mercy of God overcomes 
the judgment of God. Y'all listen, listen to me, listen to me. I'm going to have to speak a little louder. People tell me I start whispering. Y'all, this is so cool. The mercy of God overcomes the judgment of God. What, what might the rainbow point to? Precisely, the cross. See, on the cross of Christ, the one who is just, perfectly just to judge our sin, Romans chapter 3, perfectly just to judge our sin and bring punishment on the sinner, is also the one who died on the cross for the sins of anybody who would believe in him. Jesus stood in the place of sinners who would trust him to die the death that they should die, to offer them mercy. And so the rainbow points to the cross. How does it point to the cross? Because on the cross where the Savior died, where the wrath of God was being poured out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When all got dark, there was no rainbow. There was no rainbow. There was no mercy. He drank the cup of God's wrath and said, it is finished. You trust in Christ. The rainbow comes out. God's mercy in Christ. The greatest act of sacrificial love that's ever been demonstrated it can be all for you. And it's the love that you're long for all your life. A love that knows you better than you know yourself. And a love that loves you more than you ever dare dream. That's something worth surrendering to. And so, what are our applications? Let me offer you just a few. First, when God makes a promise, he keeps it. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. Because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not graciously give us all things? If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to tell you something. You can trust God. God is good all of the time. You know, we make the mistake of often deciding whether God is good based on our circumstances. I can tell you this. You'll be up and down and completely washed out. If you decide if God is good based on your circumstances, you can trust God in your suffering. Men and women, listen. You can trust God if you have cancer. You can trust him. He will care for you. He may not explain everything, but he will care for you. And even if you die wondering, when you open your eyes and see Jesus face to face, you will not wonder anymore. You can trust God in your relational brokenness. If you're walking through divorce, if you're lonely, if you were a single mom like I was raised by, or a single dad, 
if you've walked in here shattered, you can trust God in the midst of it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. He doesn't always promise explanation. He always promises presence. And his presence is described as the comforter. He will comfort you. He will take care of you. And you can trust God with your desires. Men and women, I want to tell you something. And if you're not a Christian this morning, let me tell you something about the Christian life. If you, if you place your faith in Jesus, he will give you life and life to the full. But to the full does not mean everything. Life to the full means he'll also give you hope that this world is not all there is. Is this world not crummy sometimes? I was at a funeral yesterday. They were married 42 years. She was 17 years old when he, in the Air Force at 19, came to get her from Wyoming and her daddy's house to go to San Antonio. I think I would have croaked if I was her daddy. I would have. But do you know what? They were married 42 years. But he was gone yesterday. But do you know because of Jesus, she stood up in front of us and she said, Goodbye, Tom. And then she said what every Christian in the room can say if the person who's passed on knows Christ. Until we meet again.